0: A Canadian who authorities allege is one of the world's biggest drug kingpins has been arrested in the Netherlands. C.C. Lope, also known as Brother Number Three, was nabbed on an Interpol warrant at the request of Australian police, who allege he is the head of an international drug smuggling ring which has earned him comparisons to the likes of Pablo Escobar and El Chapo Guzman. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10 3. National Post crime reporter Adrian Humphreys joins me to discuss C.C. Lopes' alleged role in this massive drug network, what led to his capture, and his criminal past in Canada. Don't forget, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Adrian, Dutch authorities made a pretty significant arrest of an individual with ties to Canada. Who is Sei Lop, and what was he arrested for in the Netherlands?
1: Sei Lop is the biggest alleged drug baron no one's ever heard of. <laughs> uh, it was really quite remarkable because he's a man with a, born in China who has Canadian citizenship, and has been you know, moved to Canada in the mid-'80s where he was involved in crime and ended up getting arrested and have a, a record, but was nowhere on um, the public's radar in terms of uh, his breadth and size of the alleged organization he ran and, until about 2019, when he was sort of outed as the head of this massive, massive meth smuggling and trafficking ring out of Asia. That the world's sort of law enforcement authorities say, you know, put him on par with like uh, El Chapo Guzman, the Mexican drug lord, or Pablo Escobar, the Colombian cocaine cartel king. Uh, don't say that five times fast. <laughs> but um, so, so we're talking like huge international kingpin level stuff here.
0: You say that, you know, he was born in China and immigrated to Canada, became a Canadian citizen. How did he? end up in Canada, and did he come to Canada and then get involved in drug smuggling and organized crime, or was he involved in those circles back in China? It's
1: hard to say with absolute precision. He came when he was 25 with his fiance, and it was sort of a wave of sort of Chinese citizens coming to Canada, Hong Kong, you know, reverting back to uh, China was sort of on the horizon and so forth. There was a lot of immigration going on. There's suggestions that he was involved in the Big Circle Boys in China, which is an organized crime group out of Guangzhou, which is um, used to be called Ch- uh, Canton. And uh, that sort of the dominant crime group there was, uh, was this Big Circle Gang or Big Circle Boys. He was certainly involved with the Big Circle Boys in Canada. It's likely that those connections were already in place before he came here. Although I have no knowledge of any sort of convictions or any specific crimes he may have been involved with in China. But certainly in Canada, he became quite a significant figure in the Big Circle Boys gang that was dealing with heroin and ecstasy and uh, other chemical drugs involved with other already established organized crime groups here. So uh, mm-hmm. we were talking about the, the mafia and we're talking about bikers and different other groups that were um, the cartels that were already operating and had a presence in Canada.
0: One thing I found interesting in your reporting on this is that you talk about how the Italian mafia doesn't necessarily always associate with other groups and, and specifically with Asian gangs. What was the work like between these groups or how did they form alliances and was it solely devoted to the drug trade? So,
1: yeah, I mean, the underworld, like the rest of the world, sort of evolved over the years. But there was a time when, this is what the RCMP and the other organized crime investigators were telling me, is that um, there was a time when the organized crime groups, particularly the Italian mafia, really liked to stay within themselves. That's who they trusted. That's who they'd worked with. And they had particular suspicion about some of the Chinese uh, criminals that they were dealing with. But that Chi uh, Law and the mafia in Canada and uh, sort of Ontario and, and later with the you know, Montreal mafias men really seemed to sort of break those barriers. I mean, I was talking to one of the organizers, the supervisors of the one of the original anti-mafia police units in Canada, and he said he was bewildered to find the mob guys, the hardcore real mafia guys in Canada working so so comfortably and and so integratedly with the triad groups, the big circle boys with that, that site say was a part of because they'd just not seen it before. Mm -hmm. They might sell to them, but they wouldn't buy from them or anything like that because they just didn't trust them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So there, there seemed to be a real, Evolution. So just as the world sort of globalized and corporations have globalized and the world's attitudes towards uh, <laughs> globalization, the underworld, uh, particularly within the mafia and within Seichi uh, Lops, uh, alleged organizations, had a real sort of cutting edge development on that.
0: Now, this involvement in the Big Circle Boys and, and dealing with other organized crime groups saw him get in trouble with the law. It saw him get arrested and convicted. What did he get caught up in? That saw him land himself in jail?
1: There was um, quite a successful drug operation led up by the Montreal Mafia, the Rizzuto organization, led by Vito Rizzuto at the time out of Montreal, and their operatives in sort of the Toronto area. And what they were doing was they had contacts, very global international contacts, the Rizzutos had. And so they had the contacts in Colombia or the sourcing of cocaine they had contacts in the United States uh, both in New York which was you know the dominant sales market for drugs they also had the contacts of course through their contacts in Italy where cocaine was also high in demand through the uh, the big circle boys they found that they could also had a contact in terms of heroin coming in from asia so what they were doing is they were taking all these disparate groups and organizations and optimizing it for a circular route of drugs and money. So they were taking the cocaine from Colombia, bringing it into Canada, redistributing it, sending it some to Italy for their colleagues to sell there, sending some to New York for their mob colleagues to sell there. They were giving some to the big circle boys to sell in Toronto. The big circle boys in turn were bringing in the heroin being manufactured in Asia. They were giving, selling some of it, you know, circulating that to the, to the, to the mob and they, and and had this beautiful sort of, circular criminal network or a, a true ring in the visual sense that was making use of the comparative advantage of each organized crime groups in their local communities and in their local source countries to internationalize and globalize the circulation of narcotics and
0: drugs. Mm-hmm. And then he wound up doing a number of years in prison after being caught up in a task force by the RCMP and FBI and Italian police?
1: Yeah, it was kind of interesting. The RCMP had an Italian mob-linked guy that was willing to work as an informant, but he just wasn't getting traction in Canada for whatever reason. So they loaned him out to the FBI to use against the targets that were emerging at the buying end in, in New York, and he did wonders there. Once the FBI gets involved, they have you know, the resources that the RCMP can only dream of. And they ended up arresting, cooperating with the Italian authorities. Um, like, it was like 40 people in Italy that were taking the distribution end there. Sei chi himself was on the arrest warrants. He had actually left Canada at that point, was in Hong Kong. He ended up being arrested in Hong Kong and extradited back to the United States. And in the United States, alongside Sei chi there was uh, two members of the Rosito family. And a half dozen other associates, big circle boys, associates of Seichi Lop's, a New York mobster who was associated with the mob families there, all indicted and faced trial in Brooklyn. And um, Seichi Lop ended up pleading guilty. And although he was facing a potential life sentence, he ended up getting a nine-year sentence, hmm. partly because he pled um, for uh, leniency due to his family. He has two children. His son had sort of congenital birth defects that affected his breathing and lungs. I don't know the exact nature of that. His parents and his wife's parents had all joined them in Canada from China, and uh, they were elderly and needing care. And uh, he begged the judge not to give him too onerous uh, a sentence to sentence him to a prison close to the Canadian border so he could maintain contact with his family. And he said that when he got out, he he wanted to open a restaurant so he could just support his family through legal means. And of course, uh, when he was arrested in Amsterdam (laughs) recently, the Allegations uh, were that he uh, definitely went into the service industry, but not for food or a restaurant. But uh, <laughs> massive, massive, unprecedented uh, order of magnitude in terms of mess sales and also, uh, you know, fentanyl, uh, other chemicals, ecstasy, and uh, as well as some heroin, apparently.
0: Do we know how he went from being a player, but a, a cog in an otherwise larger organized crime wheel to becoming a the leader of a multi-billion dollar meth organization since he left prison? The specifics,
1: I don't know, but we have some ideas. And I think a lot of it rested on the fact that he was a very quick learner and a very keen observer. And I think he learned a lot working in Canada with the Rizzuto organization. Vito Rizzuto, the mafia boss, uh, now deceased, was a master at pushing the boundaries of what the, the, the traditional mob operations were like, um, like we talked about with the working with others. And, um, you know, I described that he was a master of extending a hand instead of shaking a fist. Mm-hmm. He, he preferred to make friends uh, and, and not enemies. And I think Seiji learned a lot from that because he did mimic it later on. What we've learned is that he managed to bring together at least five triad groups and triads and a Chinese-based criminal organization, kind of like the mafia that we're more familiar with. Mm-hmm. And he, he those five fairly powerful rival triad groups, some of which were, you know, in the midst of blood feuds and stuff. And he managed to convince them all to work together and to, well, not formally join, but to to, to work in this in this network uh, that became known as the Sam Gore Network, where Sam Gore Syndicate named after Seychee Lop, because one of the nicknames for Seichi Lop is Sam Gore, which apparently is the Cantonese for um, Brother number 3, and that was one of his nicknames. Hmm. He learned that about, about the value of alliances and the value of comparative advantages, and then he recognized, in a very sort of modern business sense, how to take advantage of the geography and the terrain around him. So, I mean, he was able at first to establish these huge meth laboratories in uh, parts of China that had looser law and order regulations in that regard, through probably corruption or whatever, and was able to pump out huge amounts of meth at an industrial scale, which really, uh, you know, earned a man's profits and and gave him more power and more influence. And then when the when the Chinese government cracked down on those Chinese meth labs, uh, right on his doorstep, he already had the connections to move to a, a, an even more secluded and safer space. And that was in what's called the Shan State in northern Myanmar in the Golden Triangle, which is about as uh, close to a lawless uh, state as there is out there. Hmm. I mean, there is a law, of course, but it's uh, a local law based on sort of ethnic armies and warlords. And he started making this meth uh, virtually free of government intervention or law enforcement intervention, which allowed him to make an especially good product Part of the meth is process is sort of the drying and the chemical processes, and if you have to do it in secret or on small scale or not out in the open, it produces a, a lower quality product than if you can do it in a more expansive factory-style laboratory. And so not only was he able to produce in bulk, he was also able to produce a particularly good product. He also um took another business lesson, and that's about expanding your market mm-hmm. so whereas you know crystal meth wasn't the biggest drug in Asia at the time, but when he started pumping out low cost high quality product, it, he created his own customers and uh, it's a highly addictive drug, and he was able to expand his market beyond uh, anything that authorities had ever seen, encountered or or expected that if you look at the, the some of the numbers. Um, Matthews in in, um, in some of the areas where he was working in uh, Southeast Asia, and it, the numbers just go crazy. you know, and then, of course, it's the access points to other nations where the price is significantly higher, so the profit margin is significantly higher. Like Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, Korea, he just created massive markets there as well. The problem in in Australia was particularly serious. And in fact, it was uh, the Australian authorities that were highly motivated to curtail it. And it's, in fact, their investigation that led to the arrest warrant that was issued. It was an Interpol Red Notice, which is like an international arrest warrant issued for him. And then uh, late in January, uh, Seiji Lop was in Amsterdam Airport trying to fly back to Canada when this uh, Interpol Red Notice was triggered, and he was arrested. And now the Australians are hoping to extradite him to Australia and finally face trial and I suspect through that trial, we'll learn a lot more about Seychee Lop and how he really uh, came to be and what he was really up to.
0: How significant an arrest is this? What are officials saying about how rare it is to get someone this high up and just how big a target Sechi Lop was?
1: Yeah, there's a couple different ways of looking at that. Like on one end of it, it's huge. It's one of the truisms of uh, of organized crime. You, know, you rarely arrest the bosses. You know, they insulate themselves. They don't get their hands dirty. They have better resources. They have the underlings to take the fall for them. It's very hard to arrest a boss, especially in that part of the world where there's, uh, there's a lot of problems with corruption and police resources and so forth. So from that perspective, to lob off what's allegedly the head of the organization is an incredible achievement. Mm-hmm. And also especially since safety lob seems to be a particularly efficient and proficient at his job. You know, like Vito Rizzuto in Canada, I mean, he did his job extraordinarily well and that's the main reason why he was so successful and I think Seichi Lops' organization was probably a similar state. Now, the other flip side of this is authorities are saying that the operation and apparatus that he built, the mechanism is still there without him and that from that perspective, it's not really going to suddenly plunge the availability of methamphetamine, or, or reduce the market. Once you've created the addicts, demand is is still there, and as long as there's a demand, there will be someone that's willing to meet it. Mm-hmm. And Seichi Lop showed everyone how to do that and how to do that successfully. So from that perspective, of course, it may not make too much of a difference to the actual, um, you know, citizens and, and
0: users. Yeah, because they didn't necessarily like take down his network. They just landed him. They had an investigation into his operation. They had a warrant for him, a, an Interpol red notice, and then they were able to nab him. But it's not as though they went in to dismantle his entire organization.
1: Yeah, that's correct. There's another interesting part to the story, and that's sort of how they sort of focused in on him. Because very quickly what happened was there was a guy caught at an airport in Myanmar, you know, we' used to be called Burma, mm-hmm. and uh, he was found with very small amounts of uh, ketamine, another chemical drug uh, strapped to his legs, and it triggered a bit of an investigation, and they caught his phone and they managed to hack his phone and and they realized that he was, in fact a significant part allegedly of the Sam Gore network. And on his phone they found a treasure trove of information. Part of what was found on his phone led to specific, huge seizures of meth, like uh, over a ton was about to be uh, shipped out, was being prepared for, to ship out. Apparently, you know, he, he had been in Myanmar to arrange the shipment out. But they also found a photograph of a man that was later identified as Seishi Lop that helped police hone in on that target. So there has been huge seizures, and this is a several years investigation. And over those years, they, they knocked off ton after ton after ton of this stuff, In New Zealand, in Australia, in Japan, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, and the list goes on, (laughs) Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, all of these shipments were sort of nipped in the bud. You know, it's not as if the organization itself hasn't been rocked by it, but it it is not like you say, uh, because it's a pan-national organization – it's not like if there's a bank robbery gang in Vancouver, you can swoop in and erase, you know, arrest every member of the group, yeah. uh, and you can pretty much dismantle that organization. That's not the case here. Uh, this was a singular and discreet arrest of, uh, of safety Lop, based on this arrest warrant. I suspect it's not over. There's going to be a lot of pressure on some of the underlings who have been picked off in various countries probably to testify, to cooperate. We'll have to see what falls, but um, it's certainly not good. For either Seychee Lop or his organization, mm-hmm. but whether it's the end of either of them is yet to be seen.
0: Yeah, and obviously we'll see what transpires with extradition and whether we get a trial and what details come out of that. Adrian, fascinating stuff. Thanks for your time.
1: Oh, thanks for your interest, Dave. Appreciate it.
0: Ten Three is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Adrian Humphreys. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breakenridge. Thanks for listening.